Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Can, can I just, can you pause there for a second? I just want to point out to you in verse five where it says that we will worship and come again to you. That's the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Worship is not a slow song. Worship is a life of obedience and sacrifice. That's what worship actually is. You want to start a worship movement? Lay yourself down on an altar. Be willing to obey God no matter how hard it is. Worship appears for the first time in this verse in the Bible. Verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he went in his hand, and he, uh, excuse me, uh, and, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the, and the wood, but wh where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and he laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, oh Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. We understand that as the revelation of God as Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray real quick. Father, right now I ask and pray that you would give me wisdom as I preach as I speak, as I do my very best to deliver what you have delivered to me, Father, I pray that I would do this in the way that you would have me do it. God, I love you. I praise you. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your word. I'm going to say only what I need to say, nothing more, nothing less. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He is risen. That's right. He is risen indeed. You yell that back at me. Get real Pentecostal at the beginning of services when I do that. Just scream at me. I'm not going to get afraid of you. I'm all right. I'm a, I've got some distance. If I need to run, I've got a head start. I read this story about a little girl, it's a true story. She was telling this story as she got older. She said, when I was in the third grade, one evening I was solving math homework with my mom. She said, like any other kid, I just wanted to go and play with my friends instead of dividing complex fractions. My mother refused to let me go down and play and insisted that I should finish my homework first. So with teary eyes, I continued to do my homework. 
Later, when my mom went to the kitchen to start prepping for dinner, my dad saw me crying and solving math problems, and so he made a deal with me. Don't you love the way dads are a little bit different? He made a deal with me. (laughs) He said he would finish the rest of my homework so I could go down and play with my friends. And after my playtime was over, I came back up, happy, excited, knowing that all was well with the world, except my mother's face, she said, was not as happy as I thought. But the reason that her mother was, not, was angry with her was not because she found out that the little girl had made a secret deal with her father, but because all of the math problems had been solved incorrectly. <laughs> the story touches my heart in a deep place, honestly. It touches my heart. You remember the song, don't you, from... Sunday school, kids' church, Father Abraham. He had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm. Yeah, that that song is designed to to expel energy from children on Sunday mornings because uh, we eat cinnamon rolls and donuts and things like that early in the morning. And so we sing those songs in Sunday school so you can actually teach the kids something after that song is over with. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn your head, nod your head, sit down. The thing that's ironic about that song is this, that Abraham actually only had eight sons biologically, but even then the story of Abraham is not about eight sons. The story of Abraham to a certain degree is just really about the one son, Isaac. But but if you want to get even more technical, Abraham is considered the father of our faith long before even Isaac is born. See, Abraham becomes a father, I would say, I would suggest, not because he had a kid, but because of what he did with the promise of God to him and his family. See, Abraham's fatherhood extends to you and I, whether we have blood relation or not, because Abraham is the father of faith. And I want you to hear, father faith is a unique kind of faith, and we see it in Abraham's life. And father faith brings us to places of legacy. I'm convinced the kids are in here this morning, if you didn't know, it's all right. It doesn't matter. This is what prayer meetings used to sound like in the Pentecostal church, so you're welcome. That's just a reminder, okay? Some of y'all need to hear it again. Get you hungry and thirsty for that just a little bit more. Father faith builds legacy, and legacy is what we desperately need in the church. Legacy is what we desperately need in our homes. Legacy is what we need in this world. A passing on of something that is worth passing on. A passing on of something that will stabilize and solidify lives of faith in generations to come. I have a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old in this room right now. It matters to me that when I'm gone from this world, what they have left over is something that will last. And so I'm going to walk out a life of faith, for one thing, because God saved me and I want to serve him and honor him first and foremost. But every time I see my children, I know that I desperately want to download from me what God has put into me. I want to transfer that and download that into them. I know that it will look different. And listen to me, your kids and your grandkids, their faith might look a little different. It might express itself a little differently. They might dress differently. They might like different music. They might talk in different ways. That's okay. As long as the core of what it is that God has placed inside of you is transferred to them. As long as we've done everything possible for us to give to them the faith that was given to us, then we've done our job as people. Father faith. And, and I want you to, I want to just sweep this away as well right now. 
Father faith is not just something that happens with men. Father faith is something that happens with anyone who has influence in someone else's life. Dads, biological dads, biographical dads, stepfathers, single mothers, teachers, coaches, leaders, influencers. If you've got a YouTube channel, my son has probably seen something you've posted, okay? See, father faith is how we live so we pass on what God has given to us to another generation. And I'm gonna give you three things. I just wanna talk about three things. Kids are in here. My Father's Day gift to you men is that we're not gonna talk for 50 minutes today, okay? You're welcome. (laughs) The weather is muggy and hopefully it's gonna rain. There's no projects you can do outside. There's no grass you're gonna be able to cut. You're gonna go home. You're gonna eat too many calories and way too many carbs. You're gonna sit down on the couch. You're gonna fall asleep. Praise Jesus. It's how God designed it, all right? And I'm gonna give you the gift of getting started on that as quickly as possible, okay? But to get there to the end, we've got some ground to make up. We've got some things that we have to look at. So first of all, a life of father faith that leads to legacy is a life of significance. A life of father faith that leads to legacy is a life of significance. I wanna tell you this one thing, listen. A life of significance is created through intentional specificity. I got my wife to try and say that after me last night. It did not go well, I'm not even gonna ask you guys. The word specificity is not the easiest word to pronounce, but you can write it down easier than you can say it. Intentional specificity. I'm gonna explain to you what I mean, and I'm gonna look at Abraham's life. The Bible says God tested Abraham in verse one. God tested Abraham. What was God actually testing is our question. See, because we, we, we see Abraham's story as just a story about having Isaac and making sure that somebody is going to outlive Abraham so the promise of God can make it to the next generation. But now God is testing Abraham again, even though he has Isaac already. See, God could test Abraham up until Isaac was present, but, but then what's left? So we're faced with this idea that maybe God isn't testing Abraham just so he can have Isaac. Maybe God is actually testing Abraham because there's something more going on with Abraham and the legacy of faith that he's gonna pass down. See, maybe Isaac needs to see something that Abraham needs to show him. Maybe God just wants to make sure that Abraham, can I tell you something? Even after you feel like you're wrung out and done, even after you feel like you've served as much as you can serve, even after you feel like you're past your prime and your peak, can I tell you, the older I get, the more I realize that my prime was probably several years ago physically anyway. It still hurts to go downstairs at this point. I'm, I'm about two or three ibuprofen away from feeling good every morning. So I'm kind of at that stage of life. I'm not, I can push it and fake it, but I'm, but I'm past my prime, if you will, if you'll allow me. God says, even when you've moved past your prime, whether it be physically or faith-based, he's not forgetting about you. He still has purpose and plan for you, and that means that he's testing you. Can I tell you something? When God allows you to be tested, take that as a compliment because God's not finished with you. Some of you have walked through valleys and just cried out to God and said, why won't you just leave me alone and let me live out the rest of my life and let me go on and be with you? Can I tell you the answer to that question? It's because God still has a purpose for your life. Just because Abraham had already had Isaac did not mean Abraham was finished did not mean God was done with Abraham. And so God tests Abraham. But what God tests here is is this idea that God is testing Abraham at the point of Abraham's original calling. See, I think we, in America, we have this idea that we have to do all kinds of things. 
We want to be epic. We want to be a legend. We want to accomplish tons of things. We want to conquer every single mountain. That is the American spirit. If you try and overtake us, we will push back. If you push us harder, then we will bring a gun to every knife fight. That is the American way. It's just how we function. It's who we are. But, but what, I, what I would tell you is this. I want to ask you a question. What if God's what if God's plan for your life, what if God's calling on your life is not to do everything, but it's just to do a few things really well? See, God is testing Abraham at the point of his original calling. If you go back to Genesis 12, Abraham's not called to do a ton of things. Abraham's really only called to do one thing. Follow the voice of God when he leaves home. Even Isaac, you could argue that Abraham was supposed to do two things. That was follow God's voice when he left home and have a son. But really, God was going to give the son to Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't really create that on their own because of physical limitations. So really, God comes back in Genesis 22 and says, Abraham, I called you back in Genesis 12 to follow me. Are you still willing to follow me? even though everything that I promised you seems to be coming to pass. Listen to me now, fathers. Listen to me now, influencers. Sometimes God is gonna push you back to the place that he took you to first. You remember the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation? The problem that they had was not that they weren't doing church well, and it wasn't that their theology was poor. The problem the Ephesian church had in the book of Revelation was this. They had distanced themselves from their first love. The first time that God called. Do you remember the moment that God actually saved you? Do you remember the moment that God actually spoke over your life? Do you remember the moment when everything changed in your heart? When you realized, and I'm telling you, some of us, it took us a few days. We got down at altar, we wept and we cried. We asked God to forgive us. We repented of our sins. We wanted to be saved. But it took a couple days to realize, like, I'm not the same as I once was. Some of you, it was immediate. It was instant. But for some of us, it took some time to realize that we were not, we're no longer who we once were. There was a freedom in that moment. And God had given us a life to live out, a pathway to walk. Abraham was being tested at the point of his original calling. And so God says, I'm not here just to give you more stuff. I'm here to make sure that you remember why I called you in the first place. He limited Abraham's scope. He limited Abraham's scope. And I just want to tell you, I told you this, that a life of legacy is a life of significance. Now, here, you can write this down if you want to. This is actually pretty good. For this sermon, it's pretty good. Maybe for another sermon you heard, it's not that great. But for this sermon, this is going to be one of those points that you probably want to pull a pen out if you're writing things down. For something to be significant, by definition, it cannot be the same as every other thing. Listen close. For something to be significant, it cannot, by definition, be the same as everything else. If everything is of most importance, of highest importance, then nothing is actually important. God says, you've got the promise, you've got the son, you, you've got the thing that I told you I was going to give you, but now, is that more important than what I called you to originally? So I think some of us have floated along through our faith life, and we floated in our Christianity, and now everything is just sort of of equal importance. Coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, being nice to people, you know, trying to be a good person in public, you know, doing your job well. All of those things are, are sort of on an equal plane the older we get in our faith. Can I tell you, God's going to call some of us back to a place where we say, is my relationship with him, is my connection with him, is my obedience to him, even when it's inconvenient, is that still the most important thing in my life? 
And I want to ask you, what is most significant in your life? Amen. Thank you for that. What's most significant in your life? Because you can't create legacy. You will never pass on what is most important if you can't determine what is most important. And a lot of us just live life with a lot of drift, with a lot of floating around, with very little focus. Harry Emerson Fosdick, back in the early 1900s, he was a thinker, he said this. He said, I want to read the quote, make sure I get it right. He said, there's no steam or gas that drives anything until it's confined. There's no steam or gas that drives anything until it is confined. You think, think about it, in, in a pressure cooker, there's a reason that pressure cookers create pressure, and that's because nothing cooks if that pressure isn't present. Steam inside of it creates pressure and energy. If you take the lid off, immediately all of that steam goes away, and everything that you're trying to do in the middle of the process is defeated because pressure creates energy. Focus creates energy. Gas in a car, if you just pour gas out on the ground and drive your tires over it, it will not move your car anywhere. But if you put it in a tank and allow it to go through a compressing process into a tube, and then eventually it's turned into fumes and fire lights those fumes, energy is created and it can run your car and get you to a restaurant. Preferably someplace where they serve dessert. Jet airplanes run off the same basic idea. If you can compress the fuel and create uh, fumes out of it and then ignite those fumes, you can make an enormous hunk of metal soar over the ground almost inexplicably in your life. What is it that is so significant that you choose to be more disciplined with it than every other thing? Can I tell you something? I am fine. I'm a, I'm a Miami Hurricanes football fan. I'm probably the only one in the room, and that's all right. But we're going to be there. We're coming back, all right? But listen to me. If I miss a few games on some Saturdays, okay. It's okay. I like them. I've been a fan for years. I, I, I want to follow them. I want to watch the games because I want to be a, a good fan. And, and it, honestly, it's just a hobby. It's something that you do on Saturdays here in the South. But I want you to hear me. If I miss a few games, it's not the end of the world. But if I start missing a few days or a few weeks in time with God, if I'm not praying, if I'm not opening the scriptures and allowing him to speak to me, that's a whole different level of, of, of diffusion, of defeat, because the hurricanes are not all that important to me in comparison to my relationship with the father of all eternity. See, some of us are not determining what's significant in our lives, and so we're not able to keep it confined. We're not able to be disciplined in those areas because it's just the same as everything else. If reading the newspaper or checking your phone or looking at ESPN or watching SportsCenter or, I mean, just people who aren't like me. So if, if watching uh, home improvement shows, if all of that has the exact same weight in your life as your devotional time with Christ, then you don't have anything significant in your life, which means you can't pass anything on that's significant in your life because you have to define what is significant before you can pass on a legacy of significance. Abraham was tested by God. God said, what is most important to you? What is most important? Is it holding and protecting the promise? Or is it obeying the voice of the one who made you the promise in the first place? Second. So a life of father faith is a life of significance. And a life of father faith is a life of surrender. A life of surrender. A life of surrender is a journey, not a moment. 
A life of surrender is a journey, not a moment. Um, I am really good at starting projects. I am, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm varsity at starting projects. I am not quite as great at finishing projects, especially when they are at the house, in particular if they are taking place in rooms or areas that I don't have to see every day. Because as good as I am at starting things, I'm just as good at intentionally forgetting about them because I want to do something else. The life of surrender is seen in Genesis 22.1 because the Bible says not only did God test Abraham, but it says after these things, he tested him. Now, that's an enormous statement, right? After these things. Because we have Abraham's life of faith, all of these moments of faith that Abraham had walked out. He was called to leave his home, or the Chaldees. He walks into foreign lands where kings could take his life, and he has to learn how to trust God, even though he gets it wrong half the time. He finds that God comes into his midst, and he tries to offer sacrifices and a meal because he wants God to be near to him. He is given the option by God to take fertile land or not so fertile land, and he chooses to allow someone else to pick first. He has fought battles. He has stood in front of rulers. He has done incredible and amazing things. He's lived a life of faith. He's walked a pathway of trust. And now after all these things, God comes to him and says, are you still willing to surrender your life into my hands? Are you still willing? Because legacy is just as concerned about finishing as it is starting. Legacy is just as concerned about finishing as it is about starting. Um, I had read this piece. This is interesting. In 1997, a a researcher named Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned how to play musical instruments in public schools. McPherson wanted to know what is the difference in all of these kids between those who will go a long way, who will continue playing the instrument, gain mastery, and it becomes a lifelong part of their existence, and those who just sort of play a couple years in school and then put it down. What's the difference between those two groups? That's what he wanted to find out with this research project. And he found out the difference, not in the people themselves. So, so uh, the, the differentiators had nothing to do with their IQ, had nothing to do with whether they were tone deaf or had a good sense of, of, of tone with their ear, had nothing to do with math skills, had nothing to do with their income or socioeconomic status, and it had nothing to do with their sense of rhythm. Listen to me, I want you to, this is fascinating. The one best single predictor as to whether someone would stay with it and become great at it or whether they would give it up after a couple of years was this. It was the way they answered one question that they were asked before they even selected their instrument. Here's the question. How long do you think you'll play? Listen closely. The only thing that differentiated the ones that went on to greatness and mastery versus the ones that just put it down was the answer to the question, how long do you think you'll play? For those kids who said, I'm just going to try it out and I think I'll play it for a couple of years, 
by and large, almost 100% of them laid the instrument down before they were finished with school and never gained any mastery. But the kids who decided and said, they, they, the way they answered that question was this, I wanna play forever. I wanna be a musician. I wanna be great at this. I want it to be a part of my life for as long as I live. By and large, those children kept at the instrument far into their adult life and became excellent musicians because of it. See, it had nothing to do with their talent or gifting or ability. It had everything to do with their attitude before they ever started. A life of surrender means that when you come to God, you hear how quiet it got? That had to be the Holy Spirit. There's too many kids in here. A life of surrender is a life that says from the beginning, I'm not just here so you meet my needs. I'm here because of who you are, which means I'm gonna be with you for the rest of my life. We have too many people coming to altars looking for salvation who aren't actually looking for God. They're coming to altars looking for salvation from a moment that they're in or a problem that they're facing. But I'm just here to tell you, the beauty of grace is this, that once you meet Jesus, he is so wonderful. If you actually surrender yourself to him and you find out who he is, you don't wanna leave him. You don't wanna walk away from him. I, I, I believe that you can reject grace, so theologically I, I fall into that camp, but I also believe that once you've got a taste of Jesus, even if you walk away, you'll never know anything like him again, and that taste will haunt your thirst for the rest of your life. Listen to me. A life of surrender says that where I am right now is where I want to be forever because in his presence is what defines my life more than just the quality of circumstances. See, some of y'all need to determine that surrender in your life means that I'm giving God my whole life, not just a few pieces of it, not just as long as I get the bills paid. See, a conditional relationship with God is not a relationship with God. It's an abusive relationship with God. Yeah, I want you to hear that. A conditional relationship with God. If he's only good for you when he's good to you, then you're not in a mutual relationship with God. You're in a moment where you just want to use someone for the benefit that they provide for your life. But that's not where the depths and riches of mercy and grace are found. My, my wife is not a natural nurse. You understand what I mean by that? She taught school for too many years. She heard too many kids walk up to the front of the room and say, my stomach hurts or my head hurts. And she would look at them, gauging their, their, their body language and their facial expression, and she would say, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> now, if a kid was legitimately sick, obviously she sent them to the nurse. But you realize after a few years of teaching her, what she tells me. After a couple years of teaching, you realize that eight out of 10 kids you send to the nurse get sent right back. And so you just learn to deal with it. So suck it up, buttercup. But last December, on the way home from Tennessee, I lost my taste and my smell, which meant that I more than likely had COVID. Ironically enough, I went to get tested the next day. They delivered the results of the test about a week and a half later because that's the way the government works apparently. And so I was already better by the time I found out that I had COVID. So I just had to treat it like I already had COVID. It was great. It was really a wonderful time. Um, so for five days though, my body was completely exhausted, completely exhausted. I had no energy at all. I jumped up one time because two of our dogs got into a fight and I realized 15 feet away from the bed, I'm not ready for this kind of commitment. And so my wife, who has not, she, I love her to death and she is the best woman I ever could have chosen. I'm telling you, God led her to me. So I wanna say that as sort of just you know, an aside, first of all. 
For five days, she had to try to nurse me. She had to, she had to feed me, not feed me like with her hand, but she had to bring food to me from the kitchen, which it, it, so many of you know, I have a very limited diet. So it was really, it was like cheese quesadillas for five days straight, basically. She had to take my temperature. She brought me medicine for my head. She, she helped me in every way that she could. She was a doting wife in every way. And I was so thankful for her. But when we got married 14 and a half years ago, give or take, she did not sign on to take care of me for five days when I had COVID. Not at all. What she signed on for was every now and then you get a cold and I tell you to go in the other room and just get away from me because I got things to do. That's what she signed on for. <laughs> but the commitment is sickness and health. The commitment is richer and poorer. The commitment is good times and bad times. The commitment is not when things are going well, we're gonna have the best marriage of all times. See, the, the beauty of what is happening here is the commitment that Abraham makes to God, and, and can I tell you something that God makes to us? See, that's, that's where I think we miss it sometimes. We assume that God wants us to be committed to him through the difficult times and the valley times and the testing times and, and, and everything that goes bad, we've just got to keep praising him and worshiping him. And, and that's true. That is what God expects of us. Can I tell you something though? Man, when you're at your lowest low, when you're at your most rebellious, when you're at your, your worst possible moment, God's not walking out of the relationship because you're no longer a benefit to him. His love extends into places that you didn't dream it ever could. His love does not end because you get bad. His loving increases. Doesn't the Bible say in Romans 5 that where sin increased, grace increased all the more? The Bible says that at your lowest of lows, God actually moves closer to you because of his love and commitment to you. And God looks at Abraham and says, if I move you into a place of testing, you're still going to walk with me. That's what a life of surrender looks like. It says, I started this with you and I'm going to finish it with you no matter what. No matter what you ask me to do, no matter where you ask me to go, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter the heights of height, uh, the highest of heights or the lowest of lows, I'm going to walk with you because I have surrendered my life into this relationship. Can I tell you something? When our kids, when the generations coming after us see us walk through the hardest moments of our life and we do not give up on God and instead of running away from him, we run toward him, it embed something in their hearts and in their minds and they suddenly realize this isn't just about getting a promotion at work. This is about in the worst moments of their life they found someone they can lean on and rely on. When you surrender into the relationship you create legacy. When you surrender into the, in the relationship you create legacy. Third, we'll move on. So a life of father faith is a life of significance and a life of father faith is a life of surrender and, and so then a life of father faith becomes a life of legacy. Becomes a life of legacy. Donna, if, if it's you or Isaiah, whoever's coming to play, if you would come on, come on up. Thank you, please, I should say please. I apologize. The kids are in here, I need to say please. I have to be polite, don't I? Legacy, that quality of life that lives beyond you. Legacy is the place where significance and surrender meet. Listen closely. Legacy is the place where significance and surrender meet. 
When you've determined what is most important in your life, what is most significant, and then when you've said, I'm starting with you, I'm going to finish with you, when you put those two things together, you actually create the kind of life that will outlive your existence. And that's what we're looking for. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this about Abraham. Hebrews 11 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, he obeyed. He listened to the voice of God because the voice of God was the most significant thing in his life. He trusted. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. He was giving himself into the will of God fully. He was going to leave home in Genesis 12, and wherever that led him, he was going with God. No matter where that was, he surrendered the pathway of his life into God's hands, no matter where it went, because the voice of God was the most significant thing in his life. Now it says this. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10 is important. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Distraction is killing the church. The enemy doesn't have to attack you with sin if the enemy can invade you with distraction. Because if the enemy can distract us and cause us to put everything on the same plane of significance, and if the enemy can distract us and create the kind of life that starts things but never finishes them, then the enemy knows that we're only one generation away from giving up the faith that God has so graciously given to us. But legacy, see, legacy sets its eyes on something beyond. Legacy focuses on what is beyond and never gives up on it. Legacy refuses to be distracted. There's something that I've read about. I have two things I want to tell you, and then I'm going to be done for the day. We're actually doing okay. This is like a three-hour sermon I've trimmed down to like 40 minutes. You should be thankful. Praise Jesus all the way home. Amen? Researchers have identified something that is known as the quiet eye. So this British researcher, um, um, doctor, had put cameras onto, uh, on the heads of professional golfers and amateur golfers, and they had the cameras, they were, they were calibrated so they could tell micro movements of the head, and so they knew where the focus of the golfer was at all times. And what they found was, is that a huge difference between professional golfers and amateur golfers was how long a professional golfer actually landed their gaze on the golf ball before they putted the ball. Amateurs would be all over the place with their gaze. They could not lock in and they could only focus for a certain amount of time on the ball. But professionals seem to have the ability to actually stare at the golf ball for longer, to focus and concentrate on that thing before they struck the ball to putt. It resulted in vastly lower golf scores. Now for me, any, anybody who shoots under 100, I consider them a professional. So I have a higher bar, right? But they call this, scientists call this the quiet eye. And, and they, they said that there, there, is a, there are a lot of uh, athletes who, when they're tested, they actually have the ability to hold a longer and steadier gaze on a ball or an object than other people. Novices, by contrast, 
shift their focus between different areas of the scene. Abraham, the Bible says, set his eyes on something that was otherworldly and transcendent. Can I tell you why? Because that thing, that target would never move. See, when we set our eyes on the transcendent creator God, on Jesus, he is a fixed position. He is the North Star. If you set your eyes on anything in this world, it will, just, it will move, it will shift, it will adjust. Sometimes it'll be lower, sometimes higher, sometimes left, sometimes right. But Abraham's power was that he said, the only thing that actually matters to me in life is that I get to the place where he is. The legacy he passed on was this. The voice of God, obeying God, getting to God was the most significant thing in his life. He started that journey with God. He was not gonna quit until he actually got there because his eyes were set on a city that wasn't even in the world yet. See, if you set your eyes on heaven, C.S. Lewis said, you get earth thrown in. Jesus said it in Matthew 6. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. See, the Bible continually tells us that what we're focused on will determine the course of our life, and it will determine whether or not we leave a legacy in this life. I want to read you one story. Would you stand with me, please, this morning? Father Faith is a life of significance. What are you actually called to do and to be? Father Faith is a life of surrender. Are you as committed to finishing the pathway as you are to starting it? And Father Faith is a life of legacy. A pastor and author named Wayne Cordero told this story about a man that he knew, a church member named Bully. Bully was a gentle man who got his nickname from his days of barking out orders at construction sites. And Cordero was talking with him one day and he saw that all over Bully's hands and arms were deep scars, like he had just been gashed up in his hands and his forearms. And so he asked him, he said, did that happen on the construction sites that you worked? And Bully said, no, it did not, didn't happen there. And so he began to tell him a story. He said that back in the 1960s, in his home in Hawaii, the worst tsunami to hit that little village came when he and his wife and their infant son were living in that village. He said he was working above the bay that their home overlooked. And one morning, the tide receded so much that the children were walking out into spaces where they could see the reef and fish were flopping all over the place. Uh, we, we know that from tsunamis that, that it pulls the water back first, but they didn't realize this in the 60s, that there was something coming on the horizon. They just knew that the kids saw all of this stuff that they had seen that they had never seen before. And so people were walking out just you know hundreds of yards into the ocean, looking at all the stuff they'd never been able to see. Well, by the time they saw the wave on the horizon, they could not run as fast as they needed to. And a 60-foot tsunami started to roar into shore, and it reached deep into the village where Bully lived there in Hawaii. And Bully said that the, the, the watery fingers of that tsunami reached out, and as it receded, it came back and it clawed at all of the houses and the shacks and the businesses and the cars. It pulled all that stuff back toward the sea, overturning things and breaking things apart and ripping down buildings. Bully ran from his, from his workplace to, the, to his home where his wife was, and the water had, had come over the place where they lived, and it had pulled so much furniture and everything out, and his wife was weeping, and he asked her, what's wrong? what's wrong and she said little Robbie their six-month-old son the water took him 
Bully immediately started to run. He said, which direction did you see him last? Where was he when you last saw him? And she pointed and he began to run. He ran over the debris. He ran over the tops of the buildings that had been toppled. He ran over top of shattered cars, glass and, and boards all upended. He would look in every building and he would reach his hand down and he would tear at the corrugated steel top, uh, steel top roofs of all the buildings in Hawaii at that time. He would rip the roofs back where they had been shattered. He would look inside. He would listen for his son. He wouldn't find him. He would sprint across the tops of things, ripping roofs off of houses, looking into cars, reaching his hands through broken glass, trying desperately to find his son. Finally, after a few minutes of searching and running, he was out of breath, but he heard the sound of a cry beneath a mattress that had lodged itself between an overturned car and, and, and another piece of furniture. And he knew, he ran to it, and he reached underneath, and he saw his son, and he grabbed his six-month-old son. He said he put him in his arms like a football, and he ran as fast as he could for higher ground, having saved his boy. When he got back and he found his wife, she was weeping, and she saw their son being held by her husband. And she reached out and she grabbed them both, but then she realized that he was bloody. She said, your hands and your feet, what's wrong? All of the steel that he had reached to pull off of those roofs, it had sliced and, sh and, 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 and cut his hands into ribbons and his forearms were deeply cut and he was bleeding all over the place. His feet were cut and pierced because he had run across open nails and open glass and he had cut his feet and he had pierced the bottom the soles of his feet and he was bleeding but it didn't matter in that moment because listen to me because there was only one thing that was most important in that moment and he wasn't going to quit until he got to it and because of significance and surrender coming together in that moment Bully's son, Robbie, was saved. He grew up and became an adult, coming out of a moment when he should have been dead. Fathers, parents, grandparents, single moms, influencers, teachers, coaches, I want you to hear me. Church, if we can't define what is most significant, and then set our faces to pursue it with our whole hearts. We will not see the legacy that God has actually given to us as a gift. We will fritter away the beauty that God wants us to pass on to the next generation. I'm here to challenge you a little bit because I always challenge you a little bit, but I'm also here to tell you, can I just tell you one more thing? I, I know I always say that, but give me 45 seconds. See, because there's another story in the Bible about a young man who walked up a hill with wood on his back. See, in the New Testament, there's a story about a better Isaac who put a crossbeam on his shoulders and walked up a hill and he didn't deserve to be on that hill either. He didn't deserve to be sacrificed either, but he walked up that hill because he had set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. And Jesus knew that if he could accomplish what the Father gave him to accomplish and if he could finish it out till the end, then you and I could be saved even in this moment. See, Jesus left a legacy of salvation because he chose what was most significant and he surrendered his life into the hands of the Father to finish well. And that's what he's asked us to do as well.